I'm Dustin Zahn, and this is Trainwrecks. This week's guest is a good friend of mine. His name is Kevin McHugh. Kevin might be better known to you as Ambivalent. If you're not sure who Ambivalent is, he was a key fixture in Richie Houghton's Minus crew from 2007 up until a couple years ago. Uh, around that time, the Minus crew disbanded. Some went on to continue doing the minimal thing. Some, I have no clue where the hell they are anymore. Um, but that's not the case for Kevin. He's still soldiering on, playing on a weekly basis. Uh, he's started a couple labels since then. And he's also joined forces with Josh Wink on Ovum, uh, Sasha on Last Night on Earth, and Cian with Octopus. The interesting thing about him is that he's a really talented DJ, too. I would go as far as saying that he's a selector. Uh, like me, he's record shopping weekly, if not daily, digging up everything from the early 90s to stuff that came out today. Uh, yeah, he's a very credible and talented guy, uh, very diverse selection with the records he's buying. That's one of the topics we get into on the show is uh, you know, having range as a DJ and producer and how that's not exactly celebrated going into 2016 here, and uh, how that used to be kind of a bigger thing back in the day, especially with people like Laurent Garnier or Carl Craig, for example. So we're going to chat about that a bit. We're going to chat about what happens uh, once you're in the shadow of having a big hit record under your belt, and uh, you know other things such as being typecasted. You know, A lot of people think that He's still just some minus DJ, and just the same as a lot of people think that I'm only a drum code DJ or I only play, uh, you know, Berlin techno club kind of shit. And, uh, you know, so we both kind of have shared some of these similar struggles in different ways, and I think that's a good part of why we can identify so well together. And, yeah, so this is a really good talk, and I hope you enjoy it. Take care. It's nice to uh, see you again. Thanks. It's, it's good to hang. It's been, I saw you last week, and we were sitting there and having dinner, and it was nice to see everybody again, and I remembered today when you were coming over that, you know, it used to be back in the day in Berlin, a lot of people would get together for that stuff a lot more, Yeah. and it would not be uncommon for there to be an 8 to 12 person dinner table. And, <laughs> That's right. You said you know, that, yeah. And these days, even though... Actually, maybe even more people live here. Nobody's really hanging out as much. And, you know, everybody's got their own thing going on. Some people are older and have kids. Some are busier than ever because they have a, you know, big career now. Some people just are antisocial at this point. Uh, this is a sort of a thing that I think about a lot lately, which is like, uh, has the world changed or has a particular place changed or is it just me and all my friends getting older and that little microcosm informs your view of of everything i i i'm i find it impossible to distinguish the two but i know exactly you're you're definitely identifying something that i feel as well which is that like uh there's this really scattered energy right now among a lot of the artists and colleagues that we know and friends who are all kind of pulled in a million different directions and um, it gets very hard to connect everybody and uh, 
and keep track. And, and also, you know, just, yeah, of course the old ways of hanging out and staying in touch don't apply any as, as easily anymore. But I think that's also a, a symptom of, excuse me, um, the way we keep in touch with each other. I mean, social networks and WhatsApp, text messages, FaceTime, all these things, they've been there for a long time, Mm -hmm. but they just continue to take more and more of a percentage of our contact and the person-to-person contact just continually seems to seep away. At least that's That's my feeling. But again, I can't say that without feeling like the next thing I say is going to be get off my lawn. Like I feel like, I feel like kind of an old guy saying stuff like that. Well, Um, I mean, I guess part of that, like we were saying, maybe comes with getting a little bit older, but at the same time, it's, it's just kind of a shame because there's a lot of great people in town and like, it's really easy to get comfortable and be like, I'm not going out to meet up with these people tonight or whatever. Or there's the opposite of it where you tend to go out too much. And that's also why people, I think try to stay home because you know you're just not spending enough time at home. You're spending money. You're not working. Uh, mm-hmm. You know. So, I had a few friends who were in town this past week, and um, one of them was was remarking at being disappointed in how hard it was to get people to connect and and to get everybody to kind of navigate to being in the same place at the same time when they were visiting and it was a really valid point it's like it's it's hard the thing i couldn't put my finger on was whether this was symptomatic of a larger thing or whether it's specific to berlin because i mean you know this people listening might not know but i really pretty heavily split my time between new york and berlin and it's a problem in New York as often as I have the problem here. And I would imagine that people who are listening to this who are living in other cities would recognize the mm-hmm. the symptoms. It's like, you know, call a friend, make a, make a plan for tomorrow. By two hours before that, they've either forgotten or made another plan or something's come up. And getting a large group of people together... Um, gets harder as everybody starts to create their own priorities. I mean, you know, when you're 19 years old, everybody's got a ton of free time and not much pressure, and that's a different scenario. And it's just sort of the curve is kind of logarithmic from there as to, like, how divided people get uh, as they get older. I don't know. Or the get, I wouldn't say get older. I would say get busier because yeah. I have friends who are old who are totally juvenile, and I have friends who are young who are completely on the ball and therefore have a lot on their plate and are hard to track down. That's just it. I think, you know, time gets divided. Everybody's keeping busy, starting projects and labels. Um, yeah. Like yourself, you got a ton of things going on right now. So <laughs> I have a problem saying no. Yeah, things. well, I do too. You know, you kind of take on more than you can really handle. Um, you know, like, for example, I got a couple of remixes and I promised some EPs and stuff and... Uh, it's not going to get finished anytime soon, but um, you shouldn't say that because then anybody listening isn't going <laughs> to. I don't know when this is coming out, so I'm not too worried. <laughs> Even this goes on that list, huh? Yeah. What? Well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the podcast. You know, this is something that I I bought all this gear actually two summers ago. Wow. So I know you've mentioned this a few times of wanting. To yeah, do this. I just got busy. You know, the album tour last year was quite a bit of work and and finding a new place in Berlin. And yeah. so now I finally have the time to focus on this. 
I think it's a great idea. And I think it's the kind of thing that um, most people who are in this sort of zone, in this scene, would agree that all of us have conversations that would be far more interesting than what is out there that's offered to the regular listener to know about. Totally. You know, and and the thing is, is um, it has been promising because there's times where I kind of say, all right, we're going to take about an hour here and go through what we need to do. But it is until it's like a DJ set, not till 40 minutes or two an hour in where you're finally getting comfortable and there's people are actually saying something that uh, resonates really well. And then uh, you just keep going with it. And some of the talks have been pretty deep and insightful and some are super juvenile, but really hilarious. (laughs) So I think there's a lot of range for it. Yeah. Um, But let's go. Let's start talking about you for a bit. Um, You started. 2006, seven. Well, I mean, on the international level with Minus. I, I, right? I didn't release. Uh, my first record came out in 2006. So, I mean, that's, that's totally accurate. I wouldn't even say that, that from an international perspective because I was... 2006, I gave uh, uh, some tracks to my friend Camilla, mm-hmm. and she put them out on her label, Clink. But, I mean, she was an old roommate of mine, and Clink mm-hmm. at that point at that point it was a Brooklyn label, a New York label. So I didn't even yeah. think of it as like an international thing at that point. It was like I had a day job, I was making music and my friends wanted to put it out. Cool. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, so you had Clink and then shortly after that, it followed with Minus and Are You mm-hmm. Okay? And everything after that, eventually Plus 8, you know. Mm-hmm. So you were a pretty big part of the, the Minus family for years. And then you you kind of left that group about what, Three years ago now? Yeah, three. Roughly. Yeah. And uh, since then, um, you've kind of linked up with Josh Wink from Ovum. Yep. Um, what do you have, like four or five records on there? Oh, now? no, I wish. Uh, I've I've only done two EPs, and there's some remixes coming in in, in okay. the near future. Maybe this year. I don't know if so they'll come out this I year. I think that's where I got the four or five out of, because I have <laughs> some of that. Oh, yeah, you probably have some of the things. Um, that, yeah, too. And then, you know, you've started uh, some labels, too. you got Delft, uh, Valence, and am I missing one other one? Oh. Nope. Uh, well, there's one that's in the back of my mind, but I haven't spoken okay. it yet. But. So, I mean, no offense to any of the the Minus family that could be listening, but I think you're probably the most prolific at the moment, right, as far as, you know, hauling ass to get records done <laughs> and out there. Like, you have a lot of different projects. You've done... The Amber stuff, which you started on Minus and now it's on Mobily. Mm-hmm. Um, you've done the LA4A project, which is more acid focused. Yep. Um, you uh, worked with Michael. Uh, Michael Penman. Yeah. Yep. Was that on Tronic also? It was on Tronic and on Ovum, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, you've, you've got a lot of collaborations and projects. Um, you, you're getting JPLS back into the fold a little bit. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I mean, I guess I would say you've really decided to step on it. Is there like a reason that just now is, did you have a lot of this music saved up and you were looking to get it out or are you feeling it right now or, um, it's a combination of things. In fact, I would say that I, first of all, thank you for uh, saying all that stuff. I, I think all the, the artists who are, um, who were part of the, the minus crew back when I was part of it, we're all really committed, 
prolific. Well, some of them more committed and more prolific than others. But fair enough. Um, but yeah, I mean, they're all people who are dedicated to what they're doing. I it it's more symptomatic the 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 amount of output that I've had in the last three years since I left actually is more representative of how much I was making when I was actually still part of that whole thing. And that was part of the reason that I left is that like the, the last year that I did anything with minus was 2012. And I think I gave rich 20 tracks that year and two of them came out. And that was just kind of, there were, there were so many things that I was frustrated and struggling with and feeling confined by on so many levels that the productivity level was one of those ones where it just was, it was too, uh, too disheartening to continue to make music with that label in mind, um, and find the balance between what's good for me and what's good for, uh, listeners to that label and continually find that that was shut down because it didn't fit into Rich's DJ sets. Mm -hmm. And that was, that's something that I think, you know, I always have to look back on and how long I let that dynamic last before I finally, uh, you know, just walked out on it. Mm -hmm. Um, it wasn't like that so early on. I mean, you know, in the early days of being a part of that crew, there were kind of two criteria to get music out. You had to be a friend of Rich's. You had to be kind of committed into the whole pack with everybody. And you also had to make better shit than anything else that he was getting. It's a high bar to match, especially mm-hmm. in 2006, 2007, 2008, when, you know, there was a, a lot of, of great music coming out during that time. I mean, and a lot of great music kind of showing up in his inbox too, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was, it was a, it was a high bar to meet, but there was a, there was a give and take there. And when that give disappeared, it it started to not be, it started to be harder. And also because my, my tastes, my interests in music were changing and he was going one way and I was going another. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing that I kind of wanted to get into and it, it shows not only on your, on the various productions you've done over the last few years, ranging from, you know, house tech house, to straight up techno, um, even the remixers that you have had and will have on your label, uh, you know, like Trunkate, for example, that's yeah. pretty stomping purist kind of stuff. And so, you know, you're, you're definitely not a guy that just wants to um, stick with that, you know, mid-aughts minus sound forever or like do the tech house thing or whatnot. You're very diverse. And Thanks. I know that as, you know, I myself like a variety of things. I'm inspired by DJs like Laurent Garnier or Carl Craig or people that will play. If it's good, they're going to play it. Yeah. And um, it's pretty tough to, uh, I mean, people respect it, but diversity is not really celebrated in this industry no. at the moment. Absolutely. Okay. And um, so, I mean, I think in a way it's an accomplishment because, you know, like when when I talk to you, we can talk about records and, there's a lot of stuff that you're buying that you wouldn't necessarily expect maybe someone from the minus camp to be on top of. And and that's Mm. not even, I'm not even trying to say that in a negative way. It's just because they maybe haven't shown that kind of uh, diversity or interest in the past Mm. for whatever reasons, whether they were into it or they just didn't want to. Um, Mm. But, you know, so, I mean, you have a very diverse sound as a DJ. You're capable of doing a lot of things. You know, you did 
Ibiza last week. Earlier this year, you did um, Bergheim as LA Foray. You've been, you know, all over the place. So, I don't know. I mean, it's it's obvious that you have a lot of taste and you're trying to get it out there, but I can imagine for you that it's also been a little difficult for people to, to realize that. Yeah, I, I think that, I mean... Uh, so much of what people so much of the way people absorb things now is through how it's packaged and how it's delivered to them and everybody likes to see things in these neat little categories and um and i also think that there's they are they're given that opportunity to think that way by an industry that is willing to or motivated to feed them exactly what they think they want over and over and over again. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's, you know, it's a very, it's actually a very conservative business. People don't really think of it this way, but it's a very conservative business because everyone's doing the safe thing. Mm -hmm. At least a lot of the people at the top. And there are some people who are very successful who are not doing this. You named a few in Mm -hmm. in terms of the the artists that you are inspired by. And, And I think, you know, DJs like, Nina Kravitz, Josh Wink, Marcel Detman have really broken out to this place where they stand for just doing good music and not mm-hmm. necessarily, you know, and in, in, in particularly in their DJ sets and, and not necessarily standing for one particular pattern or sound or style. Mm-hmm. But the flip side is, is that for every one of those, there's 10 other labels, artists, DJs who are defining themselves in a very narrow field in order to it's like i mean it's a it's a it's a classic capitalistic uh approach Mm -hmm. if you want to market a product you streamline it and you make it Mm -hmm. anything that you want to sell and keep selling you just make it the same as the last before you play dj sets that people would expect based on your productions you make productions that would be similar to what you're going to DJ, you have a label that releases the productions and and it's all very neat, streamlined, clean corners. It's all like, it's all just very packaged. And that was a big part of my frustration with, with what minus became. And therefore, and also because I felt so trapped by my inability to put things out that expressed a, a wider True. range um, it wasn't that I wasn't making that stuff. It was that I was making it and it was getting denied. And I happened to let myself be stuck in an agreement that said I could only release through that label. And so once it's almost like, you know, when you, after, after a, a really serious relationship, you get out and you're kind of just up for anything. I really was like, I just wanted to go for whatever I just get in the studio and not have a filter for myself before I started um, and I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. You're right that like, that it's not an industry that, that rewards that because I'm struggling with feedback that I get from either fans on, on who are listening to things and, and posting comments and such who are like, who see me one way, either from what I made five, 10 years ago to seeing something that I made two months ago and assuming that what I'm doing now is some counter steer or some strategic move. The truth is, is that I make, I sit down and I make something that I feel connected to and I'm connected to more than just one pattern, Yeah, you know? And I mean, you know, I'm kind of in a similar position where 
it's it can be kind of easy to get typecasted. In my yeah. case, you know, like it's really strange because like half of the people kind of typecast me as like a drum code act solely. Like they mm. assume that I'll only do that kind of sound. Then the other half kind of typecast me as like, oh, he's playing that darker Berlin yeah. cheer shit or whatever. And the thing is, is it's like, well, not only do I actually love both of those worlds, but I'll I'll play house records too if I want. I don't yeah. care. And uh, a lot of people aren't really comfortable with that idea. And I, I think, honestly, in the States, it was more acceptable than it is in Europe. I mean, at least growing up in the Midwest, when I went to raves, everybody was playing house, techno. I think the big thing about when we were younger about DJs, what you said as a compliment of a DJ was that he had deep crates. Mm -hmm. There is an interest in that here, but there is not the other side of that. There's not the concomitant faith that someone who has deep crates can, can somehow like make that transition. And I, I, I find that naive. I mean, I, you have, house records that I've never heard. You have techno records that I never heard. You have what anybody would respect as deep crates, a deep Mm -hmm. knowledge of what you're, what you're playing and what you're into and where to find stuff. You put in the energy and the work to find amazing records and your sets reflect that. And I'm sure this is something that happens to you as often as it happens to me where somebody will say to you after a set, like, Oh, that wasn't what we were expecting Mm -hmm. all the time. I mean, generally they're not going to say that if it's a negative (laughs) i would hope but in a way it's hard not to take it in a negative context because it indicates more about their expectations than it does about about you as an artist and i that's frustrating because i feel like again everybody's taking these things in these pre-packaged avenues and less about it being an open-minded thing I wish I could identify what the source of that is. And maybe it's just the fact that there's so many DJs that people just have to put things in buckets. But I think another thing, like I thought this when you said that, you know, people um, sort of typecast you in in this uh, drum code vein, um, which is, you know, it's a respectable label. There's, yeah, there's great I've stuff. Got no problem with you've it. Done, you know? You've done great work with that label. It, the funny thing is, is that, and I've said this lately to people who are, you know, asking about, you know, whatever, asking about what I'm doing or what I'm going to do next or, or what's mm-hmm. going to, what's going to change. And, um, it sometimes feels like that's very Hollywood thing where you're only, people only want to see you for what you're most, what the most famous thing that's attached to you. It's true. I mean, I guess it's also worth noting to people that this isn't a problem that's exclusive to techno music. Right. I mean, you're talking about stories about being locked into exclusive contracts and stuff. This is There's legendary stories in rock and roll where labels can't wait to get released or they want to do, you know, you know, back in the hair metal days, they want to rock out and they're like, no, you got to do a power ballad because that's what's up right now. And yeah. they're like, I fucking hate power ballads. You know what I mean? Or like, uh, you know... Um, you know, in comedy movies, there'll always be, like, the one guy of the moment, like, you know, the slightly overweight, funny dude. He's never going to be, like, the... It's it's really hard to shake that, that typecast, so he'll never be an actor that's, like, the the main lead in a drama or something. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that's just a quality that's kind of exclusive, or not exclusive to that, but to, it's just a thing of human nature. People like to 
compartmentalize things. Yeah, and I think the truth is, and I mean, I, I agree with you. you. We can't sit here and like complain about like, oh, we're oppressed artists because people aren't, uh, you know, absorbing every single thing that we do. Of course, sure. it's natural to uh, people have better shit to do in, in a day than follow every single thing that I'm doing. Yeah. Um, I the only thing that I struggle with is people's. Um, inability to receive stuff in an honest format when they do find it right Mm -hmm. instead of saying like oh i don't like this because it doesn't sound like the thing that i've built myself into expecting from this artist instead it is you know instead it would be nicer if people just said wow okay this person's trying something new how do i feel about this as music not about like how does this fit with my expectations and i think we're so consumerized now Everything is so, because there's so much content coming at people all the time. There's so much, I mean, photos, videos, funny jokes, internet memes. It's just, there's a news feed in front of us constantly in every direction that's always got something new and novel to catch their attention. And so people build themselves these expectations of what they want. And it's very hard as an artist to, to break through that noise. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, on the flip side of it, um, some people really like it. There's, I know guys that are on the road, they're like, hey, man, I, they have, I do this one thing. I have mm-hmm. this tunnel vision. It works well for me. And, I mean, these are guys that, you know, they're not like you or I. They don't care about digging 15, 20 plus hours a week for that one special cut or something. They're like, hey, I just want to rock out for an hour and a half, two hours and have a couple of drinks and go home. Yeah. And, um, there's nothing wrong with that either. You know what I mean? Like, sure. as long as it's always the promoter's job in the end to choose the right DJ or live act for the appropriate yeah. time. You know what I mean? Like, I think if you just uh, load up a lineup of guys who just want to hammer it for an hour or two each, the party, I mean, it'll have the energy, but it maybe won't be as memorable. So you book one or two of those guys, and then you book a guy that's like the selector. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe towards the end of the night, so you get some uh, kind of vibe or dynamic going on, and yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of ways to do it, but it's that's just, an idealized scenario too. I mean, there's it not is. too many clubs that are able to do that or willing. Well, you know, I mean, things are changing right now, like not just uh, not just in the underground scene, but also EDM. Like uh, SFX is losing their ass in the stock market, yeah. and that bubble is up, is evidently popping. Uh, I mean. The scene in Europe, especially right now, is pretty healthy. I mean, hmm. there's a lot of parties going on and stuff like that. Um, you know, some acts obviously get to play all of them, and some aren't as lucky. But um, I kind of see that bubble kind of going down a bit, too. And not right now, but maybe in the next couple of years, it's going to slow down a bit. And I hope at that point it really forces people to to remember some things and kind of bring in a little bit more influence rather than just this prepackaged to like, here's your experience. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think, um, I, I don't know. I, it's funny to hear you say that Europe is healthy. Cause I, the sense that I've been getting is that there are more DJs than ever and fewer clubs than there were a handful of years ago. Um, that doesn't mean that it's unhealthy, but what I, what I'm starting to notice is that there is this kind of critical mass where it's, uh, it's just reached, it's reached a point where 
the big stuff only pops through on a certain level. That's true. I mean, it's it depends on which level, I guess, you want to say something is healthy. I guess when I look at it, I say it in the sense that if I go to, let's say, if, if I'm going to play in Rome this weekend, which I'm not, I'm going to get in the car and almost certainly the driver will be like, oh, yeah, Rome's, it's pretty dead these days, you know, mm. et cetera. But they have four or five parties that night with nearly all A-list talent. So in that sense... But how do those parties end up doing? Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess for, my, for myself, most parties I've done in Italy have been well attended, you know. Right. But I mean, again... I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not like Dave Clark or somebody where there's a huge overhead. So it's like one of those things where you can ex- hope for 1,500 people. And if you only get maybe uh, 1,200, that 300 people can be a pretty big loss at the door. Mm. So who knows? I mean, I'm just saying like, I think that when it comes down to it, there's a lot of events going on. The production's bigger than ever. It's in some ways more professional than ever, I think. I mean, there's yeah. always still the same kind of BS where, like, your driver maybe had drinks or something, and that's really uncool, or you get forgotten at the airport, or, you know, that stuff will always exist, but I would like to think that it's it's definitely become more professional, but at the same time, it's also harder than ever to kind of break through, too. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's funny, actually, as you're saying all of this stuff, I'm sort of thinking, I don't know if... I don't know how closely I've been watching things in terms of like on the ground from city to city and how much I've been aware of all of that stuff. And I don't know how much of that is current and how much of my perspective on these things are like, you know, one or two years old based Mm -hmm. on places that I played, you know, back then. So, you know, I'm in such a weird transitionary state. I don't know that I would be able to identify, uh, whether things are are better or worse or di- or how they're different um it does seem though that there is this sort of um facebook effect on things not facebook specifically but this thing that like if something is hot and being talked about that matters greater than uh that matters greater than the length or 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 longevity of somebody's contribution i mean yeah I people mean, come and go in in a year or two that's how know? it's you know i mean it's the hype factor and that's how things go these days you know it's uh all it takes is like one youtube video where it shows where the record is in the breakdown and then the kick drops in and everybody goes nuts and then they're like oh that was an amazing party right maybe it was maybe it wasn't but you'll never know and but that's all you need to kind of fuel the fire to keep it going and do you feel that? I mean, how how do you respond to that? Because that creates a pressure. I think that particular situation. That well, the yeah, the, that particular scenario that you're talking about, where like, um, you know, it can make a huge difference to have a video of a bunch of people screaming uh, at some you know huge moment in the set. And how much do you feel that that creates a pressure to consistently be doing that? And how do you respond to that pressure? Well, I guess at the time when I'm DJing, when people only see videos of, you know, that moment where it all drops in or it's really dramatic, I think people get this idea in their head that when they go to the parties, that should be the entire set. Right. So that's kind of stressor because, yeah. you know, 
I don't want to show up and play two hours. I mean, I'm a pretty dynamic DJ, and I like to kind of, you know, do some big tricks and shit once in a while. But um, I don't want it to have to be the whole thing, and I don't want people to get the impression that that's how it always is. Right. And um, But on the social media point of view from it, I'm not, I don't really... I think maybe in the past I cared more, but at the moment I don't give a shit. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously I was really active on Twitter, uh, you know, in the past, and I quit that about three months ago. And um, yeah, I haven't seen what. Tell me what what happened because I haven't seen you as. I, active there was on no that, like so. come to Jesus moment or anything. I just decided that I was kind of running my mouth about everything, <laughs> and the only time I was ever entertaining is when I was drinking and. <laughs> I don't know. I uh, I don't. I mean, maybe I'll go back to it. I just felt like right now I'm like I don't really need to focus on this. I don't want people to kind of be a fan just because of I can crack some sarcastic jokes right. five times a day. You know what I mean? I'm sure. just like you know what? I'm gonna go back to worrying about the music a little bit more. Yeah. And I, you know, when I see people posting these videos of of their sets i don't really have a problem with it because i mean some of these kids they really love it They're like i was at that party i remember right. that that was awesome you know i yeah. posted a video from italy this weekend it was uh it was a really great moment so i have no problem with it but i don't really feel the pressure to always have to post a picture of the crowd mm-hmm. or uh or you know a video of it i should do it more because i think maybe promoters would realize then like the environment that I'm in, mm-hmm. but you know that's just not me, and I'm I'm fairly modest, so I don't I feel like it's a little bit more of a bragging thing in a way. But at the same time, what I really like to do is, you know, one of the bigger tracks of the night. That's kind of I like to post a YouTube video of that of yeah. that track, be like this track did it for me. Or, I like it when you do that; it's cool because it does give it's a way to give a flavor of the night without, and also indicate the kinds of music you're interested in playing and it's a it's representative of what you did without it being this kind of um not to get all like post-structural theory about it but it's not you're not putting forward this like simulacra of the night it's just like here is something that's indicative of what happened not some simulation not some transmission from from Mm -hmm. the internet about it it's like you know, the people who are there will recognize this record. The people who are not there will hear this and know that this kind of music got played there, but I don't mm-hmm. need to give you a 30-second soundbite of what that experience was. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's great for the artist. It puts the emphasis on the person that actually made the record. I'm just the guy that's getting paid to play their record. You know <laughs> what I mean? So it's kind of like a trickle-down. Like, maybe people will buy the record. Maybe they'll go to their next gig. Maybe they'll hate the record. Who knows? But it's like, hey, this is a guy I like. This is who I support. Yeah, that no, it's and, admirable uh, for sure. You know, I just think of people like, uh, you know, take somebody like Ben Clark or somebody that has like a lot of influence at the moment. I think if people on this level, or not even just at his level, but like at all levels, they would share more, you know, tracks or something like that, or even did more charts. Like people think charts are bullshit, but I'm like, people don't talk enough about music these days. You know, you see more producers complaining about whether it's politics or or video games or like pop culture stuff. Like they're rarely speaking about music. You see more mm. pictures of tennis shoes and Ramoa bags <laughs> and shit than you do hearing about like what they're into at the moment. You yeah. Know? And I'm like, well, 
you're a DJ. I don't want to hear about your new Nike shoes. I want to, what are you playing? What, you know, what are you making? And I think that's partly a function of how, how much this stuff has become all about utility. The records that big DJs get as promos, they end up playing and it's just literally handed to them. And they're, and look, I'm not saying I shouldn't say them because I'm guilty of this as well, of getting promos, playing them and not really doing a lot with it other than playing it in a club and thinking later, like, well, what does the, what does the label get out of me playing this? Unless uh, aside from just me saying, in feedback, like, hey, this is awesome, I'm going to definitely play it, or, you know, hey, sometimes I'll write to the, the label afterwards, like, hey, I, mm-hmm. I've been playing this a lot, I really love it. That that stuff is sometimes what you can do, but I think you're right that so much of this is instead about, like, people just churning out sets and getting the material for those sets, then churning out those sets and continuing to just move it along to keep the machine running rather than being fans and saying... Like, oh, I, you know, I, I finally dug up this thing. I mean, you, you know, people probably don't know this who are listening. I think actually people p- might not even know that you and I are friend- as friendly as we are. Like, the, I don't know that they yeah. might know that. But, you know, you and I will sometimes share a, a, a rip of an old record that's 20 years old that we mm-hmm. dug out of a, a crate in, a, in storage and yeah. said, oh, you know, like, remember this or share it with each other. And that is something that, even the people who are in the club might not necessarily understand what they're hearing and the ability then to share that. It's funny you you doing that. It reminds me that I need to do that more and share the kinds of things that I've been playing and what I like about them, because I think it is a way of saying, Hey, there's like a broader thing than just like pictures of people with their hands in the air. Mm -hmm. The experience of being a DJ in my opinion is about being a seeker. Yeah. It's about somebody who's always on the hunt for inspiration and reward and excitement, not about these, basically these one person corporations that are constantly moving their brand forward by just churning tracks through. And mm-hmm. I, I, I agree that that's the right way to go. I, I should do more too. Yeah. I mean like, you know, Ryan Elliott is another guy, for example, he's like religiously does his, his charts, charts on the amazing. first yeah, and so uh, you know, I, I, completely agree with him he's like well this is i'm not going to do a dj mix every week i'm not gonna <laughs> but he's like these are the tracks i'm playing and there's no better way i think i can support than to try and share the message like this is what i'm into this is what i think you should check out for the month i find it so hard to narrow it down to 10 tracks i don't i mean no i i probably because I'm a, I'm a hoarder, especially with the digital files, like not even the vinyl that I buy each week, I could probably grab 50 or 60 tracks a month, be, be it house, techno, minimal, No, you that's what it. I mean. I mean, selecting it down to 10 tracks, yeah. that's what I'm saying. Well, like, it's hard for me to come down to it and be like, all right, only 10, which ones am I going to do? And then also like, okay, which labels am I really supporting? what of my own stuff because i've got so much of my own stuff not just that i'm producing myself but that i'm releasing from other artists how do i keep that in the mix and Mm -hmm. it's i just end up getting thrown off by charts which i shouldn't but another guy another reputable guy was telling me the same thing i'm like you know you're in a good position now you should really do some charts like kind of let's do this trickle down effect let's share with the artists a bit more and he's like well you know it just it would take so much time for me to do it and i mean granted he's 
a little bit older, so he doesn't have a... He's not so savvy on the computer and stuff, but it's like, well, I don't know. I mean, yeah, sure, 40 or 50 tracks and doing it down to 10 could be hard. And sure, what if it takes you, you know, a half hour or 45 minutes of your time? But, it, like, you're making, well, not you in particular, but, like, this guy is making quite a bit of money off of playing these tracks. It's like, right. it's. Yeah. I think it's cool to spend an hour to say, like, here you guys thanks for yeah thanks for giving me the music you yeah. know what i mean no that's that's absolutely true and i i think i i end up making the mistake of just not thinking it matters but then when when somebody charts something that i've released on my label i not my own stuff but anything from one of my labels i'm really thankful it means mm-hmm. a lot so I, I i agree with you and i think that kind of stuff putting track lists for mixes that you put up counts for so much you know just so Mm -hmm. somebody knows what's out there and can go out and do it because really that is our job i mean as djs that's our job is to share good music with people and be a source for it i found a little bit like there was this there was a thing i think you and i might have even had a conversation about it around the time that it became a big thing about um these uh these tracker pages on uh on facebook that post stuff that's been played in clubs or, you know, post like an artist that DJed that weekend in the club and then post yeah. a, a track identified from that set. And some DJs really had a problem with that. And I, I could see it both ways. I can understand on one level, like, Hey, let the experience be the experience. We don't need to like, you know, transmit everything. Um, some things are better left in the room that, that they happen in, but there's another side to it too, which is, as a DJ, we can't be so protective of our secret weapons and just assume that like we have you own it some propriety yeah. over it. I mean, of course, yeah. Like when you've got you know cracked, dusty fingers from digging through things, and you've spent money and time and effort to find something special and put together a set that really represents a lot of thought and work and effort. Yeah, of course, everybody wants to maintain that. But by the time you've played it, you've shared it with people. Ideally, you should be a step ahead and, you know, always, like, finding new stuff. Yeah. I mean, I agree, you know, like, I personally am one of these people who I don't mind sharing stuff so much. And I'm not afraid of, like, necessarily losing my secret weapon because that just forces me to find a new one. A new one, yeah. You know? Some people, they're like, well, I want to hold on to this forever. And there's, there's, you know, I'll play devil's advocate because it can really go both ways. Like, for example, track lists on DJ mixes. Um, on one hand, I really like doing it because I said I like to support people who are, you know, trying to make an effort in this business to get noticed. And that's a great way. On the other hand, people, especially in this day and age, are feel... Are, they're very lazy, so the only thing they're going to do is comb DJ charts yeah. or or mix tracks, uh, track lists and mixes. And um, so, you know, they don't do the digging. So The counter know. to that, though, is that, like, if, you're, if your track list is that easy to replicate, then maybe you're not trying hard. Not, I'm not saying you, yeah. but, like, any track list that is that easy to replicate probably isn't worth protecting as closely the flip side also, or, or, you know, the other part of that as well is that people are going to take it and reconstitute it and put their name on it. But those people are generally not going to, you know, we, I, I always had this thing where like, especially early on, 
in the early days when I was on Minus and there was so much heated, focused attention on everything that anybody affiliated with the label was doing, was that people would snip tracks that I had made and given to Magda or Troy or Rich, Mm -hmm. snip that out and put them in their own DJ mixes. And it was a big thing at that time and it was really frustrating to me. And then the... When I look back on it now, well, I mean, even it wasn't, it didn't take me that long to come to it, but I, I realized at some point, like, well, they don't get anything out of this. I mean, nobody's no. pulling a fast one and thinking that that DJ has suddenly, like, scored some amazing mm-hmm. thing and that they're somehow a source of great gold, you know, energy there. They're just, they're, anybody who's taking a shortcut is going to end up where a shortcut takes you. Nobody's going to get there in the long haul. You have to put the work and the time in. And so if somebody does, you know, rip your track list and go and find all those and replicate it, how individual are they and how interesting are they? Which is a, which gets back to the other part of the conversation that we were having before, which is the more diverse and the more interesting and the more broad your taste as a DJ is, the less likely somebody's able to repackage what you're doing. True. You know, and I think... What I've, because I've been experimenting in the last few podcasts that I did, some have the track list, some don't. And some, what I think is a happy medium is I just say, here's the artist in order, start digging. You know what I mean? Mm. Like, you have a place to, to start, and then it forces you, like, if I post a mix and there's an ambivalent track in there and I don't put the title, they got to click through all your tracks and then maybe mm. they find something that's, that's great. A really, you know? That's a really interesting idea. And I know Matt Edwards, Radio Slave, does something similar where he'll say at the end of a weekend, post a list of artists who you know really made a big impact on his sets during that time. And I think that's a really cool thing as well to just sort of say, like, hey, here's some information but uh, it's not. I'm not just gonna like do the work for you. Like here's where exactly. here's where it is. You know, um, go out and and find these artists mm-hmm. and see what they have for you. Maybe it'll work. Maybe it won't. And I think that's a cool way. Yeah, I mean, it 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 gives you a little bit of a head start, but doesn't do the job for you. And then you know what? Maybe through that searching it'll help you create your own sound yeah you know? and also not overprivilege one track over another i mean that's a thing that i'm often sensitive to is i i love all the music i make if or i don't love all the music i make i love all the music i get to the point of releasing mm-hmm. right by the time it's come out i've pretty much figured out like that certain stuff just isn't going to come and certain stuff should be out but i don't love the hits more and the stuff that is popular is not always an indication of the stuff that I love more than others. And what's re- what really resonates for one listener doesn't for another, but maybe hopefully somebody other, some, some, one of the other people likes a different track. And I like that when, when somebody says, hey, here's an artist to watch, mm-hmm. not, hey, here's a track that you've got to hear. Because nobody's as good as their best track or as bad as their worst track. Artists are more complicated than that. Yeah. I, I hate that saying where, or the theory that, uh, you're only as good as your last record or, I mean, that exists in other industries. You're as good as your last product pitch or whatever. You know what I mean? As good as your last, whatever. Yeah. And I'm just like, well, that's not necessarily true because people do screw up on things, whether it's a record or releasing a new product. And that doesn't mean that like, 
that's where you stop. Like if you have a legacy before that, you still have this credibility that like you could come back with something bigger than ever. Or maybe it is a sign that things are starting to go downhill for you. So you can't say that's a definite. But the question of what's big is so dependent on how and in what ways audiences absorb things. I mean, there are records that I hear now where I'm like, man, if this came out in 2006, people would be going absolutely apeshit for it. It's unfortunate that this won't come out or this isn't going to be received in that time frame, but it's a great record. I'm going to play it or I'll find a way to fit it into a set where it's in the right time and place. I mean, truth be told, like the probably are you okay? will probably always be one of the biggest records that in, in my career, I think it's one of the shittiest things I've ever made. If I'm honest, I have deeply mixed feelings about it for a number of reasons, but it was successful in because of the moment that it was in yeah, and because right of the label place, that it right came time. out right place right time but i've made i've made probably 20 tracks that i love 10 times more than that that didn't hit with the right label at the right moment some tracks didn't even get signed and i still love them more than that mm-hmm. in my opinion it's not the, the most successful stuff and this is of course a truism that everybody's going to think uh, but you know the most successful stuff is not the best stuff of course and you know that's uh i think that's something that every band or every dj struggles with you know mick jagger said he would never play satisfaction again back in i think the 70s and then someone actually counted how many gigs that he played (laughs) satisfaction since then and it was i think in the thousands (laughs) um you know like for myself uh stranger stability was a big hit yeah and that was more so because of the lenvaki remix and while it did have a positive effect on my career the direction i went it you know wasn't such a big help like yeah i got booked at some more ravey festivals or stuff like that but the Mm. people that were more focused on the techno that i'm you know hold more true to my heart they didn't they didn't give a shit about it you know but you know, so for a lot of people, I can never beat that track. However, since then, I've actually had, you know, a number of tracks in the top tens. I've had tracks that actually sold better than that, hmm. um, you know, maybe in a shorter period rather than over a longer period. Yet, I will never be able to live that down. And I get frustrated with it, but that's part of life. And I guess... uh I'm not going to complain about it too much because it was also a big help in launching shit for me, you know, and everybody's got it. You know, I I talked to Ben Clark at the airport one day about it and he's like, well, you know, people still hold their cell phones up to me and say, play Sub-Zero, Matt Edwards, Radio Slave. He has trouble living down Grindhouse, you know, like he'll be playing like uh, a Larry Heard record or something at six in the morning and someone's holding up their phone that says, you know, Grindhouse, Dubfire remix. And it's like, where the hell is your head at? You know what yeah. I mean? So it's a, it's a thing that I think every act has to deal with and how you handle it kind of determines your... Um, well, if you're lucky enough to have... I mean, you know, only so many people are lucky enough to have something that propels them that far. I mean, obviously, my, my feelings about the, you know, the stuff that has moved me forward, you know, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm super grateful for it and I'm grateful that anything I've done continues to have some kind of impact, but it's hard to, it's hard to let that be the high watermark 
in your life and just assume that it's always going to stay that way. I think for everyone, it's healthy to just continue pushing to try to make their best music today because also you don't, you don't know. I mean, you know, we could probably think of a bunch of examples of artists who made incredible stuff 10 years after, you know, their other biggest hit, you know, and some artists continually manage to surprise and cut through and break through the noise and, and get out there and get noticed or get heard in ways that's always really impressive. So it can really be, it's totally possible. Yeah. Um, I mean, like I said, there's, I've said it many times on this podcast, there's never a right way or wrong way to, to approach things. I mean, I well, there's some wrong ways. <laughs> there, there's definitely wrong ways, but just because maybe it didn't work for me doesn't mean it wouldn't work for you. Sure, yeah. But, I mean, of course, you know, you could totally burn your bridges by being an asshole or something. But, you know, what? I guess what we're ta- what, a lot of what we're talking about here is something that is all based on personal experience and how it worked out for you. Like, yeah. some people really embrace the, like, oh, yeah, well, I did this big hit. You know what I mean? They, they have yeah. no, they're not upset that, you know they sold 20,000 copies and they're getting paid six grand a night or whatever. Like, yeah, yeah, I did that. Like I'm comfortable with owning up to this. Yeah. And I played so, with a, I played with a big act recently who closed their set with their, with a hit that they made in 2006. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a nine year old track. That's like their kind of big moment. And uh, you know, it's still a great record. They're still great artists. I was surprised that they wouldn't feel boxed in by that, but on one level they're kind of celebrating what they've done and they're indicating what, you know, what they're all about and that's it's it's interesting to me. I part of the reason I stopped doing live sets was that I felt trapped by that kind of scenario of trapped by, you know, the music that people knew of me and just constantly, you know, reprogramming that stuff and as a DJ having, you know, wanting to have broader boundaries than that. On the other hand, I think if people like what you do and they like that you did it and they want to hear you celebrate it or or they, they, you know, they want to hear that from you. I don't know. Sometimes I think, well, why be an asshole about it? Why not just like give them, you know, the, the thing that they paid the money to come see. Um, you know, it's like my friend's, did a movie called shut up and play the hits you know it's like you know Mm -hmm. shut up and play the hits like give us what we paid our ticket money for it's it's kind of i don't know it 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 makes some sense to me on on another level as an artist i struggle with not wanting to be confined by it but i do see the sense in yeah i mean i don't if i'm gonna go see one of my favorite bands i want to hear some the, the tracks that in my youth i'm like oh yeah this was it for me i don't probably don't want to hear the new album because realistically 20 years later the new album's probably shit you want to hear the hits so i mean i get that mindset but then as a performer you're like oh i don't want to play the hits so it's uh so how much i mean this kind of really actually quite neatly fits back into another part of the conversation which is like you know uh giving people what they expect right i mean if people see dustin's on on a flyer mm-hmm how much are you meeting them in the middle of what they expect from you and how much are you um, doing what you think is Dustin's on and letting them figure out the differences 
Mm-hmm. I wrote, you know, I wrote something about this. I, I wrote a piece in Accelerator earlier this year about DJing, and part of it was about meeting people's expectations. How much do you carry out your sound, quote unquote, sound, uh-huh. and how much do you take people on a different adventure? Well, I mean, as much as I could maybe complain about how I'm not taken seriously enough as a diverse DJ, I guess I'm I am fortunate enough to get enough diverse gigs where I kind of tailor my sound to wherever I'm going to that retains what is essentially me. You know what I mean? Like, for example, if I go play Awakenings this weekend, it's definitely going to be a bit more, I'm going to ramp it up a little bit more big room, high energy kind of vibe, but I'm not going to play something that would be out of character for me just because it's a big track and I'm looking for big tracks that night. Of course. Um, but let's just say on a on a well. But would you play Stranger Disability? No, <laughs> <laughs> I haven't played that in probably uh, three or four years, I think. Yeah. And would I ever play it again? I'm not saying no, but well, first of all, I, uh, I'm just tired of it. But a lot of people expect that I would play that when I go out, and it's always the times when there's maybe only fifty people left on the floor. I'm like, this is a big track. This isn't the moment for it. Mm-hmm. Like if it was. 2,000 people and the party was just amazing and I thought that was the perfect track for the moment, I would play it. Really? Well, I mean, that would be the time to play it. I'm not going to. But, you know, if I was inclined to uh, or feeling inclined. But I, I guess right now when it comes down to it, I I feel like I almost every gig I play what I would consider my sound. Whether mm-hmm. And I, I've really found a happy medium um, – you know, what I do in my techno sets where it's kind of deeper and more hypnotic but still a bit funky, I've found that also in my house sets, it actually translates over kind of perfectly. I mean, obviously, the music's much more shameless and a bit more, uh, you know, I don't know, maybe cheesy. For techno heads, it's probably cheesy. I think, yeah, that's an interesting thing to try to clarify, too, because I wouldn't imagine that what you would be, what you would constitute as shameless or cheesy is not nearly as far in that direction as most people would imagine. Agreeable. You know, you know, I just look at it from the techno fan perspective. Sure. Um, but well, from the techno fan perspective or the techno snob perspective, because I think the snobs are like the quote unquote elite listeners would classify certain things as cheesy that would Mm -hmm. absolutely destroy 90% of clubs and be an amazing record and still be super underground on the spectrum of, electronic yeah. music i mean it, it's tough to say i don't you know and it you could you, you got to be careful with how you say that because you don't really want to offend people either but like let's say i go to some clubs where they're really not looking for the most heady techno record of the moment they're looking right. for more like the like beat port jams <laughs> kind of thing and if i was to play let's say uh some houseier cuts there I think they're not going to leave the floor but a lot of them would question like well this isn't really beaten techno you know what i mean yeah um but anyway i guess like what i'm getting at is that my kind of uh sound or vibe that i'm going for translates across whatever i'm playing where and you know like as a dj now i'm not trying to be the guy that um is pushing the big room techno sound and i'm not trying to be another guy who's desperately hoping to play at Berghain every week or trezor or any of these kind of clubs Mm. um I'm trying to be a guy that, like, when I DJ, I'm 
I'm going for the spirit that I first experienced in the late nineties when I started as a teenager, you know what I mean? And that means like, uh, you know, a lot of excitement was in the air. Even DJs like Danny Tenegla, he would play techno records back in the day. And, uh, you know, like, uh, in the Midwest, we'd always have people like Frankie bones and stuff like that. And how is techno? It wasn't about what genre it was. It was about what kind of environment you're getting out of the mix. And that's what I'm going for now. Like this weekend I played in Italy. Um, Played on a on a terrace for a closing party for the summer, yeah. And uh, I started off, you know, definitely more on the funky kind of techno tip floor plan and stuff like that. And then I got, I got pretty brutal in the middle just to like really ramp it up and give them the show, give them what they paid for. Yeah. And then by the end, I kind of went into like housey territory because I'm, you know, it's the end of the summer. People are feeling good. And I want something uplifting. I don't want them to feel like they're walking into an apocalyptic war zone. So <laughs> I think that I'm doing a good job at giving them what they're coming for. And if, if you disagree, email me and tell me, but <laughs> can't say I'm going to listen, but I'll read it. Yeah. What I about you? I don't know. I, it's funny, actually, I, I was going to ask you a question about like that whole thing. Cause I, I really do like what you said about trying to capture a vibe from the moment that really inspired you and that influenced you Mm -hmm. and like, you know, nineties rave and techno. Do you find that that pushes you? Cause sometimes it does this to me. Do you find that it pushes you towards picking tracks that sound like they were from that era or actually are from that era more than new stuff? Like, I guess what I'm saying is like how much of what you're doing to achieve that that vibe that you're looking for, how much of that is is achieved by the approach globally towards music and how much of it is actually trying to get records that have that sound and that groove? Well, I think it's it's actually a good question and it's worth going into because a lot of it right now, especially with... Uh, for lack of a better word, the purest techno sound sort of things. People are always like, man, everybody's stuck in the 90s or they're playing records from the 90s. And, I mean, I love a lot of records from the 90s because that's I'm nostalgic for that. So, yeah, sometimes I'm playing those records from the 90s and sometimes I'm looking for new stuff that's resemblant of that. Like, you know, Shed's yeah. a great example. Everybody's like, oh, yeah, this guy is totally doing the 90s thing. And even Shed goes, I'm not making anything new. I'm just making the stuff that I liked as a teenager. I mean, and that's, um, that's what the whole, for me, that's the whole impetus behind Delft. Yeah. It's like making stuff that's current and new, but is redolent of a period that mm-hmm. inspired me to get into this music. That's, that's where my roots are. That's where the roots of this music are. I don't feel like it's nostalgia necessarily, but it just is what it is. Yeah. I mean, well, the way I look at it is it, there's also a certain spirit back then that, isn't really around now and like for example um i look at a record like lemonade model eight you know that was re-released on plus eight that's a lot of eights but um you know for me when that record got repressed i was really excited about it because i see a certain spirit in that record it's really ravey it's really 90s it's a pretty hard record it's high energy but it's really exciting and it's kind of dramatic um it fits in a lot of different sets whether you know i've seen Rich play it uh, on a terrace in a minimal set. I've heard people drop it uh, in hard techno sets. Like, it's a very diverse record. 
And that goes to show that a record doesn't have to have dark drones to be yeah. an intense record. Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to have diva vocals to be in a house set. Mm-hmm. It's a, and but there's there's just something about it with the like the snares and everything that you know it's got that old school rave energy, and people don't really seem to retain that now. It's a lot of you know square bass lines with reverb and um, side chain pads and stuff that I don't know. It just uh, so I, I am chasing that spirit, but at the same time, I don't want to only, I don't want to chase only those tracks. I want something new. Yeah. And as much as I love the '90s, I don't want to do a whole set of just '90s and early 2000s kind of music. Um, so there's this other set of thoughts that I've kind of been juggling with this whole question about what's nostalgia and what's innovation, and you know, I've talked to a few people about this and. Some have had differing viewpoints, and sometimes it's like, well, you know, this music is, it's always, it's, it was, this music was always about the future. It's always about, you know, um, you know, looking forward and not looking backwards. And I've kind of, I mean, you know, I take my name as ambivalent, so don't expect me to stay on one side of any issue. But where, where I'm at right now is like, actually, this isn't music that was about the, that's about the future. This music is about the vision of the future that we had from like 1989 to 1996. And basically, and the truth is, it's like that those were the formative years of this genre. That's the vision of the future that all of us are continually in love with. We don't have to constantly update it for it to be great. You know, when you listen to genre music, particularly dance music, and I don't mean electronic dance music. If you listen to Soka, if you listen to Calypso, if you listen to Salsa, these are things where there is, there's, a, there's a finite box around mm-hmm. it. And as soon as you get outside that box, you're outside that thing. That's not actually a disqualification of any of the music within it. There it takes enormous creativity to work within that box and continually stay interesting. And part of it is also that this is a ritual, we continually share this ritual together. We perform the ritual on a weekly basis. And when you deviate too much from that rit- ritual, you're in a different religion. And that's okay. There's nothing against it. But to say, like, oh, this is getting stale, well, you know, I mean, honestly, like, if you want to find the stuff that has the most futuristic sounds in it today, it's probably dubstep. It's probably some o- other thing that is not techno. And that's okay. That doesn't mean that techno is outdated it doesn't mean it's irrelevant what it is is that electronic music and and this also goes for film too most of the sounds the quote-unquote sounds of the future in film are based on 1960s analog modular synthesizers and Mm -hmm. what you could do with those that somehow got programmed into our brain is like that's what a laser gun sounds like that's Mm -hmm. what you know uh, a spaceship sounds like those are all things that you can recreate on synthesizers from technology that's 50 years old. And we're sitting here playing things on vinyl records that's like the oldest technology out there. And even I at times was like, oh, you know, vinyl is, you know, kind of an outdated thing because it's whatever, you know, it's an old technology. And then I went back and I realized, well, no, it's the technology that founded this stuff. And every, the world can go on and find their flying cars and their future there. This is a vision of the future that captivated us and our generation. And we can continue to reiterate that to people who are willing to listen and don't have to 
just go with the latest thing right now and somehow like in order to be relevant. Mm -hmm. I don't know. That's my, I I totally agree. You know, and the other part that's worth mentioning is that it's kind of a, unfortunately it's a dwindling return things, just like anything in life, whether it's, you know, you keep hitting up the same favorite restaurant, like it's never going to be quite as amazing as that first time. And I mean, it's, you know, some places are very consistent, but I guess what I'm getting at with music is, you know, when I first heard uh, electronic music, I thought it was futuristic. It was incredible. I never heard anything like it. Yeah. Uh, you know, 20 years later, I've seen and heard it all, so not much really has that quality. You know what I mean? Like, you do, you demand more, you look for more, or it's kind of like a person who starts off just uh, smoking weed, and that's not hard enough for them, so they, they have to increase their search for you know, bigger things. And I guess as a crate digger, I'm that way too. Like, well, this isn't as futuristic to me. So where's the next futuristic thing? And I've just realized that that's not really, um, I don't know. It doesn't, nothing really sounds that futuristic anymore, but at the same time, I'm more interested in finding combinations of things to me. Cause that to me sounds futuristic. Like, all right, well maybe it's time to go back to trying ideas that you wouldn't normally have done before, like maybe taking different kinds of guitar notes and it doesn't have to have a boomy nine oh nine. Maybe it has some of the other nine oh nine percussion, like just how it melds together. You know, like Arthur Russell, he was really talented at uh combining even the cello and uh like digital congas in his voice. Yeah. I mean to me that's a fu- it's a futuristic idea to take all these other elements and put it together. It's about creativity. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean realistically when you look to the future that's synonymous with creativity, right? I mean whether it's product design or how you can accomplish things, you have to be creative in order to get to that point. Yeah, I mean, you know, retrospective stuff can always can still be inspiring and 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 new and it doesn't even have to be about the future i mean there are beautiful songs written with an acoustic guitar that are groundbreaking on one level or another and they're using chord progressions that are you know 200 years old Mm -hmm. but i mean look the same chord progression is is there in in 90 percent of pop hits each time there's a new iteration of it, there is a new approach to it. Mm-hmm. It's it's about everything that you do around the the core structure. I mean, the beat of techno is not going to change. So there's also that. And yet, at the same time, we can continue to find... You know it when you feel it. You know when you find that inspiration, when you feel that thing that's that like really grabs you and you just kind of get this extra heartbeat and this quick flush of Mm -hmm. like, wow, this is amazing. I love what this is. And usually that's not about like, oh, this is so forward thinking. It's more just like, wow, that's a really audacious idea or wow, that's a really beautiful melody or whatever it is, whatever impulse reaction you have to it is what makes it good. Not whether it's like using analog gear or digital gear, not whether it was like mixed down properly or not, not whether it has proper Mm -hmm. mastering it really comes down to what's the idea and does it resonate in something inside of me? That's different for everyone. Yeah, I mean, it's it's definitely subjective. You know, like, on a very easy-to-understand scale, um, the last Kanye West album, hmm. I don't remember what it is because I don't listen, but it was, like, very experimental and distorted. 
Uh, I think even he sampled Aphex Twin or something. Was that the My Dark Fantasy? No, they... I think it was Yeezus, Yeezus? or something. Okay. okay. And anyway, I was listening to it. And I'm like, okay, this sounds like a lot of the really abrasive uh, experimental tracks I was listening to in the late 90s, but yeah. with him screaming over the top. And everybody that wasn't doing what I was doing was like, oh, my God, this is groundbreaking. This is amazing. And I guess right now this sounds like very hipster of me to be like, oh, I was, I already knew that, so this didn't right. really appeal to me. And I'm not even trying to say that I'm I'm better than any, than anybody else because I heard this stuff before, but it was more on the tip of like, it didn't really resonate with me as a groundbreaking album because he took the inspiration from where I was getting my inspiration. You know what I mean? So Sure. I mean... To I, me, it didn't seem futuristic, but to everybody else, they're like, this is the future of hip-hop, yeah. you know? And I think I, I think that's also... You know, everybody, just because it's new to someone doesn't mean it's new to others. Um, and that, that works in the obverse, too. Just because it's not new to you doesn't mean it's not inspiring or or, yeah. um, or boring to somebody else. And I think that's, you know, we all have to give enough leeway to every listener to be excited about it. I think, you know, the interesting thing with Kanye is that he tends to take whatever his source material is and take it to another level somehow some way or another and i always find him inspiring for that i i think that he gets a lot more heat than he deserves from all kinds of people it's just because of his attitude really but yeah and i i you know the funny thing is is that his attitude tends to get the most feedback but in a lot of ways i think that his attitude often comes from a really good place actually i think that his attitude tends to be more like hey you know as a as a black guy in America, I'm not given many opportunities to shine. So when I do shine, I'm not going to hide it at all. I'm not going to let anybody make me feel ashamed about it. I'm going to tell everyone that I'm the greatest because I believe I'm the greatest because I because I'm from a generation of guys who are made to feel like we're not. Mm-hmm. You know, we're 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 put at the bottom of things and we constantly have stuff stolen from us. So I totally get why he he says the things he does. I think his personality is almost impossible for any of us to judge because we don't actually know him um, personally except through his music and through his commentary. And if that's what he says and believes, I'm kind of like, well, all right, good for him. You know, like that's, that's totally cool. It's not stuff that I would say about myself, mm-hmm. but I might not be standing as high on, a, on as high of a mountain as he's standing on. And I may not be looking back as far from where he's come from as he is. So I'm not going to knock him for it. You know, sounds, sounds all right. At yeah. least in my opinion, but I can also see where a lot of people think it seems gallingly over well, confident, it, but it, it, yeah, it's a bit much. And you know, again, it's one of those opinionated things like how much you can really tolerate of it or not. Yeah. Um, and I mean, I agree in the sense that like, you know, he obviously has his ideas and he's on a mission and whether I support it or not, it might taste, are irrelevant it doesn't matter you know um if someone's listening right now like whether you like him or not is totally up to you if i say he sucks that should not matter at all (laughs) sure but um you know like yeah you know like even uh a guy like dead mouse for example i'm not into the music i'm not really into him as a person he said some things that resonate more truth than anybody else in that edm industry Mm. but at the same time I think he's a putz and like there's some things where I'm just like, dude, just keep it closed. You know what I mean? But I follow him on Twitter mainly because I love to see how, 
how far he's willing to go at any moment to mm-hmm. to say something. And I, I do actually kind of like when people are, are super unfiltered and they seem pretty unafraid of just saying what they think. I mean, of course, you know, like there's some there's some destructive ways to be unfiltered. But I also, uh, if I compare him to, or or any other outspoken, really popular artist, if I compare them to these really kind of like tight-lipped, image-conscious, uh, quote-unquote, underground people who never want to offend anybody or never want to say anything that could get interpreted later that they would want to take back, it, it's very hard for me to feel like, that's a genuine connection that I have with that person. And I mean, this is something I always thought is like, I love following you on Twitter because the funny outrageous (laughs) shit that you say is like, well, people now know what Dustin Zahn is like when you go and have a beer with him and he's entertaining and he's charming and he's smart and that's fun. And maybe he's a little annoying because he says some things that you don't agree with, but take that along with all the other stuff and it's a lot more interesting than a guy who always wears a mask on stage and only sends cryptic three-word tweets every yeah. 10 weeks. You know, like that, to me, I feel like that's kind of... I've it's just, almost gimmicky in a way. Yeah, and there, is, and there is a gimmicky quality to a lot of what's going on in the quote-unquote underground right now of, like, you know, stuff that that is purposely anonymous. I mean, you know, of course, I've taken my own liberties with that. But there is this sense that, like, if you can't like it... I mean, part of the reason I did LA Foray was because I I just didn't feel like there were a lot of people who would give an ambivalent record that a, a chance. Yeah. And, and it proved me right. There were tons of artists who would never have even opened that That's record true. or downloaded that promo or whatever who were loving it. And then suddenly when I came out and said it was me they stopped loving it. And it was kind of like, well, here we go. Like, this is what it is. The the packaging and the marketing matters as much to the anti-hype people. The hype matters as much in the reverse direction as it does in the other direction. And people who would have turned their nose up at me because I was associated with a quote-unquote brand, Mm -hmm. suddenly when they got something that was anti-branded, were all for it. And and yeah. it, if it comes in the right packaging, then they're all for it. And that that I find, well, I just find it hypocritical. I mean, I, I wouldn't say it's disheartening. It just is what it is. But it, it is, it's annoying at times. It seems hypocritical. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people go through it. You know, um, I go through it myself. In fact, this week I got offered to do a gig. Well, they, we spoke about it. And then in the end, they kind of felt like I was too commercial, which is mm. pretty pretty hilarious considering there's not much about me that's very commercial but by their standards which is fine and um you know a lot of people won't give people the time of day simply based on the branding like you said Mm -hmm. you know like i know for example adam bear is a guy who if anybody is following him has seen his sound change quite a bit in the last couple years i mean that's evident also on drum code and true soul but he's a guy that you know was really pushing for the longest time, just like banging techno. Yeah. And then he also had a Detroit side to him, and that's why True Soul kind of started. Those were pretty melodic records. Uh, he did stuff on spec and whatnot. And, of course, when the minimal thing came, he really was pushing his idea of that too. And then, But still, you know, even till a couple of years ago, a lot of uh, 
clubs and promoters still felt like, oh, I don't know, he's gonna he's gonna bang out some techno or whatever. And he's like, no, I really can, I can handle uh, playing these kind of sets that I want to do. And you know, he proved himself, and now he's doing you know more sets with like Ida back to back, and people don't necessarily expect him to beat it. Sometimes, sometimes he will, sometimes he won't. But there's a you know even at that level, people kind of place an expectation on you or typecasting like we were saying earlier and uh yeah i mean it's something that you can definitely get around but it is annoying you know well and i mean you know to have expectations to push against to have an audience that you have to steer is a nice problem to have i mean you know we can all like i can complain about like oh people see me this way and i want them to see me that way and that sounds kind of disingenuous and it sounds spoiled. I mean, to have an audience of people who are willing to listen or, you know, who even just have expectations, who know your name, is a, it's a nice thing to, to have as an artist. So, you know, and I think anybody who's in our position or someone like Adams would, would agree with that too. I think everybody feels privileged to do this. But once you're there and you have goals and you have other inspiration, you want to follow mm-hmm. that inspiration and you want to take that audience with you, because I think there's no reward in only giving people what they want or only giving mm-hmm. them what they expect because in the end, they're disappointed by that too. I mean, you know, if you give people exactly what they expect, they're only going to want that and eventually they're going to get tired of it because that's not inspiring for them. So challenging yourself and challenging them mm-hmm. is the name of the game and doing it on enough of a, a smart timeline or doing it in a way that um, that people can come around to is the ideal way to do it easier said than done. I mean, I'm challenged right now with like, you know, I, I put out some really heavy techno records in the last earlier this year. And over the course of the summer, like I put out something that was a lot more melodic on Ovum this year. And I have something coming on another big label in a couple of weeks. That's very melodic. Mm -hmm. And in my estimation, that's all techno. It's all within the spectrum of what inspired me because some of the things that I loved the most about Detroit techno was the musicality of it. I mean, mm-hmm. beautiful. I mean, Derek May and Carl Craig wrote some incredible, Juan Atkins wrote incredible melodies. It wasn't mm-hmm. just stripped down, bare bones, machine music, like grayscale yeah. drone stabs. It was musical. It yeah. was beautiful and it was emotive and it was powerful. And those things inspired me. And yet, you know, like, sorry to call it out like this, but somebody made a comment when you were posting uh, about oh, this yeah. show and somebody made a comment like, oh, you know, asking David, like, oh, what do you think of ambivalence turned to techno? And I, I, it really threw me because it's like, well, wait a minute. I've been programming techno, like throwing techno events before, like 10 years before I even had a record out. Yeah. I was I was in techno. I was inspired by techno and following techno as a religion for years and -hmm. yet some people have this idea and i kind of spouted about this on twitter a little bit to to maybe my own chagrin like the idea that there's one style of techno or there's one sound that is genuine and that others are false or that an artist can do one thing and not do others in the course of the same year to me really rankles me it's this idea that like that one thing is right and others are not or that one thing is what an artist has done therefore they should continue to do it really i guess it's all about obviously how it's delivered but that kind of attitude really seems to me to be like a very narrow view of the world 
and and frustrating because it it puts people in a box it it, it limits expression and I, I find that disappointing i agree completely you know and i you know when it comes down to it i think a lot of these people just also don't have the same amount of experience they don't realize that like a lot of people have history like if some people may think that you know a lot of people honestly don't even know that uh you know, maybe that you were part of minus or what might like a lot, they, they weren't even around for the minimal period. You know what I mean? Like, cause this, the, this industry kind of has generations in my opinion, every like four to seven years. Mm. So like a lot of people have no clue what was going on from like 2005 to 2008. You know yeah. what I mean? And, uh, they, they think like, you know, Richie's, uh, just attack. I was DJ. They didn't realize that minus was kind of built on this like after hours, minimal thing. Well, it wasn't originated from that, but you know, and kind of in your era and whatnot, and yeah, um, and and also that you know, like that the records that were released in that time were not also the be all and end all of what those DJ sets were like. I mean, so much sure. of what I'm playing, and I, you know, I'm not ashamed to say this. A lot of what I still do as a DJ was inspired by things that Houghton was doing fifteen, oh yeah, twenty years ago. And I, part of what I try to do is capture the spirit that I had, similar to what you were saying earlier, capturing the spirit of what I felt when I first heard a Dan Bell DJ set, mm-hmm. you know, like capturing that is something that I'm, oh, it's a, it's a sort of, it's a beacon that it's a North star that I'm always going to be chasing. Yeah. And, um, and just because somebody heard one artist through one perspective in the same way that somebody would always expect you to be in 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 one vein or or play one set of things doesn't really represent it all i mean of course you know i don't expect everybody to be my best friend or to know everything that i've done or hold my hand and see how i feel about things or ask me where i'm at today but um i also think that people who call themselves techno fans should try to have a broader understanding of what's out there because there are Carl Craig records that don't sound anything like what you're going to hear at Berghain, and yet the records that Carl made back in the day are absolutely the inspiration for people who you're hearing at Berghain or people who are making Completely. things that are of that style. And there are things that can inspire us from years ago that don't necessarily trickle out into everything that we make, no. but they're still in the background of it. I mean, you know, like... The, the guys who who are residents at Berghain tend to be the most deeply knowledgeable custodians of the history of this music mm-hmm. and they're brilliant at it and that's what mean that's what makes it possible for when they play a set that fits a certain quote unquote sound that people expect it gives them the ability to go deeper with that and do something really special and interesting with it and i think that's amazing Unfortunately, people end up receiving that as dogma rather than as, you know, one iteration of one particular thing. Yeah, no, I I agree totally. Like, for example, um, I want to say it was 2003 or four when Michael Mayer did his Fabric CD, Mm. which is, you know, one of my all-time favorite mix CDs. We brought him to Minneapolis. And, I mean, that's a very minimal after hours pop music kind of vibe that he was going for with compact back then i mean he still does to this day but you know at this point i was still kind of like banging the ass end out of it with techno like just hammering it and we were talking he's like oh yeah i used to buy all the old surgeon records that was like the real minimal you know what i mean like on downwards and stuff and like 
at that point, it kind of resonated with me back then. Like, just because he's doing this and he's not really playing Surgeon Records yeah. doesn't mean that he doesn't uh, have the knowledge or, like, this wasn't an inspiration at that point. Like, okay, so he's not playing distorted kick drums and it's not abrasive, but that minimal stripped-down element is still retained in what he was playing for us later that night. You know what I mean? Yeah, and, I mean, you know, he's a great example of somebody. You know, he's done these tours where... He does the entire tour where every club he plays, he plays the opening to the close. And I think that's every every good DJ's mm-hmm. dream is to be able to take people through an entire experience. Because if your record collection only fits in one section of the, the, the record shop, you probably have ignored some really good shit. And I don't think that's going to necessarily make a better DJ is somebody who really drills deep on one thing. I, you know, of course, there's a bunch of people who are, you know, uh, whose diversity is a mile wide but an inch deep, and that's you know the flip side to it. But um, I think people who are passionate about good DJs will always find the ones who can hit a bunch of key points over the course of one set if they do it right and have enough time. Obviously, I mean, mm-hmm. a two-hour DJ set is not a really a, a way to kind of squeeze in an encyclopedia encyclopedic knowledge of music. It's it's going to be what it's going to be in yeah. two hours. But you're going to do the hits and a couple linking things, and that's. That's roughly what it's going to be, at least in the shorter sets, you know, especially festival sets. Um, You know, all this talk about, um, it's kind of a good segue, you know, being inspired by these old records or having this experience from the past. Yeah. Uh, I was talking to you earlier today, um, and you're kind of just like, I'm coming over early to do this interview. The studio is not working for me today. (laughs) I'm not feeling inspired. And uh, I think before we go, it'd be interesting to talk about dealing with inspiration in the studio because yeah well anybody that's trying to make music or does it for a career yeah uh they're constantly hitting their head on the wall you know yeah i mean you know uh sometimes all it takes is hearing somebody else do something that really like opens up you know uh opens up a wall in your mind it just breaks through it and suddenly you see like a ton of territory on the other side of it and it's like well shit, if that person could do that, maybe I can do it. Sometimes it's finding, it's breaking through that wall yourself. Yeah. Um, you never know where that's going to come from. Um, and what I meant about like seeing somebody else do it, it's not about like following and just doing what they did. But you, just, you get excited because you want to do it yourself now or something rather. Yeah. Or you just understand that there's like, there's a really rich area that you had been overlooking and finding something else in, in a different terrain is, um, is possible um, because I think it is exactly this thing that we've been talking about, about repeating yourself. How do you not rip yourself off how, and how do you not just always play to expectations or repeat whatever you've mm-hmm. done? How do you find new territory? Cause honestly, that's the only thing that's valuable. I mean, there is no, you know, the truth is, is that like releasing a techno record generally is going to lose someone some money, whether yeah. it's you releasing it yourself and losing money on it, or a label releasing it for you and losing some money on it, but keeping a little bit of the quote-unquote branding value mm-hmm. for themselves out of it. Whatever that is, there's not really a lot of financial... Not a lot. There's almost zero financial reward to most techno records, except that it's an opportunity to express something to people and to find some new inspiration in the studio. I mean, the studio is therapy for me. Lately, I've been really struggling with a lot of stuff mentally and 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 trying to keep my head in you know sort of 
finding what I'm, what I'm, where my place is right now. And the studio is the cure for that. Mm, I mean, yeah, me somebody too. once said to me, like, the best cure for anxiety is action. And for me, the best action is in the studio. And um, taking action on something and finding a place where, you know, whatever is on your mind, being able to get into something and get control of a machine, get control of a melody, get control of a hook or an idea and press it down into some form that can actually be shared with the world is it's a good workout. It's yeah. good therapy. It's good. It's good practice. It's good mental energy. Um, but when you don't have the impetus, impetus to do that, how do you get yourself in there? And some people say, Oh, you know, don't force it because if you're forcing it, then, you know, you're going to come up with something that's, you know, substandard and only follow something when you mm-hmm. have an idea. And then there's other, uh, there's other approaches where, which are basically like show up for it every day whether the excitement or inspiration is there or not, show up for it every day. Like, you know, Nick Cave writes about, like, you know, I show up for my muse every day because if I don't, she gets angry and she might not show up for me. Yeah. You know, and it's that thing, like, you have to find, you have to, you have to fuel your own inspiration as much as use your inspiration as your own fuel. And it's a cycle. And if it's not, if the engine isn't turning over, you've got to keep trying. On the other hand, like bringing negative energy into it, bringing expectation into your own work will rarely produce something super rewarding. But you also have to wait it out. When it's not rewarding, you have to just wait it out until it is. I don't write hits every day. I don't sit down and go, I'm going to write a hit. I don't make my best record every time Mm -hmm. I sit down. Sometimes I sit down and think I'm making my best, and it's the track I make three days later that is better when I kept trying to bang my head through it and yeah. find that thing, you just don't know. And and sometimes even after you've made it, you don't know if it's right. No, I mean, I have records that are pressed on vinyl and I still don't know if they're right. But, um, I mean, you're a knowledgeable guy, so I'm guessing you do, but you're aware of the Brian Eno oblique strategies. Sure, yeah. Is that something that you kind of looked into and then you're just over it now? Or do you, is that something you would even consider applying? Or I mean, oblique strategies is kind of a... It's kind of a, it's always been an interesting tool. I find that when it comes down to using it on a, like, uh, on a functional daily level, um, it's different for everybody. Some people find it as a great way to break through something or solve a problem. For me, you know, my background is actually in art. I went to art school. I worked in the art world. I was actually on my following a path to be a curator in the art world and work in galleries and museums when I started DJing and programming music festivals and stuff. And that's how I got my, my thing. And so that tends to be a source of, um, a source of inspiration for me. Oddly. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not like I, you know, think, Oh, I need an inspiration. I'll go look at a painting and then look at a painting and go home and write a song about it. That's not quite what it is. But what I find is that seeing how artists in the 20th and 21st century found their ways to solve problems um, gives, me the, gives me the juice that I need to sense, like, okay, there is a way to solve this. There, there is an, another iteration of this thing that I can find mm-hmm. that will have some value to me. I just have to, 
squeeze it harder. I just have to look through it more. I just have to keep going with it. And, um, that, that tends to be a huge source of inspiration for me. But at the end of the day, also, I mean, your mood and your mental state makes a huge difference. You know, if you've got something on your mind, I mean, I think I said this to you when we were going back and forth earlier today. Like if you're, if you, if you don't, if you've got anxieties or pressure or concerns or doubts, Getting into the studio, it, that's going to come through, and it's not necessarily going to be creative or healthy or productive. It can often just be Big a time. huge block, you know? And those blocks, actually, those blocks are sometimes good to fuel what comes next. Actually, I think blocks can be healthy. I think lack of inspiration can be, you know, in the same way that, like, you know, farmers don't farm the same field all the time. No, they, they have, have to change it all the time. Rest, you know? And in, in that same way, you can't just be a machine but this is a this is a a time that we live in and an industry that we're working in where being on all the time is the only way to survive and it gets very exhausting and i see people burn out with it a lot i've gone through burnout myself i i deal with it roughly twice a year every six months i'm ready to call it quits and then i get over it move on the hardest moments for me actually are when something has succeeded I, i i find the most the most blocked up and limited I've ever been has been in the six months following a successful record. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's, it kind of gets put on a pedestal. So maybe do you find yourself being worried? Like, uh, can I follow this up or live up to it? Or is it just the fact that you're busy on the road too much or what's no, it's like every time I sit down, it's like, okay, how do I exercise the ghost of what that is without losing what I found was valuable about it or what the audience found was valuable about it. Right. Like, Oh, you know, I loved that record when I made it by the time it came out, I'd kind of like dealt with it. And then once it came out, everybody else got so excited about it. And now how do I make sure it's not a cage? Yeah. Or how do I make sure that whatever I did find valuable about it when I first made it is still accessible to me in a way that I can make fresh or make interesting or fuck it, put it in a box, put that on a shelf, get away from it, do something completely different and actually like piss off as many people as possible so that you, um, so that you never have people comfortably setting their expectations for you. I mean, ideally the goal is that as an artist, you are the only one in charge of your expectations. No one else's expectations of you are the factor. And the best way to do that is never follow up something people like with anything like it. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I, who also said that was uh, Dennis Ferreira when he did, um, how what's what I heard you say, um, the huge, uh, record that Dennis Ferreira did like, I don't know, four or five years ago. Okay. I mean, he's had a lot of records. Yeah. Huge. Um, I, I'm drawing a blank right now, but anyway, he's, they're like, well, what are you going to do now? Cause he's in an interview and he's like, I'm not going to do anything. Like, what do you mean? He's like, when you got a big record that like that, it's like, it's hard to follow up. You don't want to do the same thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. And he's like, you know, I have some ideas, but it's not going to be that, you know, like, and I feel like that's kind of similar to what you're saying. Like, you don't want to, you know. No. And I, you know, but at the other side of it, like not many of us have that much control over what we do after one thing or another. Generally, maybe people listening will know this, but generally things are set six months out for releases oh, yeah. and such. So 
if you handed out a bunch of demos and, and you know, you handed out, you signed five different records in a year and the third one is a huge hit, you don't have a lot of control as to when or what the fourth and fifth ones will oh. be and when they'll come out and whether they're a fair response to the one before. Mm-hmm. And people have this idea. It's the same as like with movie stars that they think that like, uh, you know, uh, like some actor is like doing this to follow up that actors don't have control over shit. No producers in this business, unless they're the ones actually putting out the record on their label, don't have a lot of control as to when come, when it comes out, which one comes out first. I mean, I've had records come out, you know, six months after something that I made, you know, long before it, you know, it's like, you know, things come out in jumbled order. They come out at different times. Sometimes things come out two weeks apart from each other and they were made with six to six months of difference in between them or two or three months in between them. You don't, there's not like a, there's not just like this sort of like farm to table or whatever, like kind of process. Like it takes time. It takes time to get somebody to listen, listen to something, decide whether to put it out, then get it mastered, then get it cut, then all of these other things. So by the time people hear it, they hopefully just take it as it is rather than take it as like, this is their statement today. Yeah. I mean, the stuff that I have coming out this winter will be a year and a half or two years old by the time it comes, you know? And, and the funny thing is, is once you, once the day that record hits, it's going to be six months before people, promoters more or less really recognize that. I mean, some people are on the ball in the bookie innocently, but you're not really going to see, how successful that record was in terms of bookings until, you know, five, six months later. And uh, so it's a really long process. And you don't know who else has stuff coming out at that same time that might be similar. I mean, two, two artists can think in very similar paths and have people be like, oh, well, that guy copied that. Well, those records came out two weeks apart. There's yeah. absolutely no physical way one person can get an idea from another which I guess is also another argument for make your stuff as different and original as possible because you never want to sound like somebody else anyway. True. Yeah, I mean, I actually the the coincidental like tracks coming out at the same time. Mm-hmm. I forget what it was, but it was I want to say it was a couple weeks ago that I came across two that were like painfully identical. Ooh. But you know that there was nobody ripped each other off. It was impossible because right. just knowing the artists and labels, I can't remember offhand and probably it's better that i don't uh go into it on there but uh you know that happens over time uh one two quick things yeah uh one i remember that dennis Ferrer track it's hey hey not that oh of course yeah yeah yeah. um and then i remembered later that uh we were talking about oblique strategies yeah and if anybody's listening and they want to know more about it um basically it's this uh card set that brian gave out or he didn't give out, he sold it. And it's worth a lot of money now, the actual, the original run. Mm. Um, it's just kind of little business cards that have uh, their strategies for any artist, but mostly for musicians that uh, they're really kind of vague sentences that force you to think. It's not saying like, do this or do that. Um, you know, some of the examples, like you can even download iPhone apps. I've got mine open right now. Uh, one of the, flashcards is discover your formulas and abandon them that one's a little bit more straightforward but it makes you think well what do i always do what should i change or what could i do different this time um another one says do we need holes 
you know, what does that mean? Does that mean space in between the beats? Does that mean silence or, uh, you know, you know, there's all kinds of these here. Um, obvious questions like, would anybody want it? I ask myself that a lot. Like, (laughs) okay, this track sounds cool, but where does this have a place anywhere? You know what I mean? Um, story of my life. Yeah. Uh, let's see. When is it for? That's kind of just what I said before. Also, like, you know, is there an appropriate time for this? Uh, what mistakes did you make the last time? So some of them are very obvious. Some of them are vague, but it just forces you to really think about what you've done, your process, what's going on in the track, as opposed to saying EQ the bass drum or something, yeah. you know, obvious. So if if you like that, go online. There's websites that have all the same things for free, and there's apps. If you want to buy the card set, get out your wallet on eBay because it'll be pricey. Is it uh, pricey? You know, I looked when I first heard about it, I looked online in the original run. I saw some of them going for like two hundred fifty, three hundred bucks. Um, in in the scope of limited edition, anything that's that, that's not fair. Too, but I mean, but yeah, I know what you mean. I mean, ultimately, I don't think. I think what what's interesting about you know his approach to that is he was kind of also really not precious about it either. He just kind of put it out, did it, and and moved on. I think he's really interesting in that way that he's always been. Uh, you know, not too concerned about squeezing money out of anything. He just finds inspiration and moves on and, and, and continues to make sure that he's not boxed in by any of it. And, um, I, I, I really admire that. Yeah. I mean, some people are really good at that quality. Like take, for example, Carl Connor Regis. Mm, Sure. He's done, uh, numerous label projects. Now he's really kind of been in the background for a lot of, bands and uh other artists uh, a lot of projects he's responsible for that people will never know about because it's yeah. anonymous and uh you know these are people that like they they quick get into an idea whether it's for money or not is a different uh situation and then they just go with it and then they move on they're like you know what i can find something else to do yeah and so um i guess we're getting towards the end of it now is there anything that uh I don't know, you got on your mind or anything like that? No, in fact, actually, a lot of what's been on my mind lately is stuff that we talked about, so that's kind of refreshing. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, You know, I don't really know what order these are going in yet, but um, let's say as far as the end of fall, early winter, do you got anything coming up that you want to plug that people should look for? Around that time, there will be be the next LA4A EP. It's actually been a while since I've done an LA4 AEP, even though Delft has been pretty consistently putting stuff out. A lot of the stuff I've been putting out has been other artists. So there's an LA4 AEP coming, I mean, depending on vinyl pressing times, hopefully early November. And there will be something on Valance. I I have to figure out whether it's going to be a record from me or a record from another artist. Uh, Part of that has to do with that artist's scheduling commitments and whether, you know, my release would overlap for them and become a problem for them. So we're, we're working out scheduling, but there's probably one or two things left coming on my label. And I'm still kind of hoping that it's not too late to, um, get something through on, on, uh, one or two of the other labels that I am, am sending stuff to lately. We'll, we'll see. I mean, it's such a crapshoot. Sometimes the the funny thing is, is sometimes the only thing that you know is the stuff that you've put in the, 
in the in the queue yourself because yeah. everything else is hard to know. And uh, you know, I'm sure you've been there in the past. Sometimes, as we've said uh, here on the show, that it takes a long time for these records to come out. But there's other times where three weeks later it's out. Yeah, you know, I know Rich was really. You never knew what was going to go on with him. Um, at least towards the end, like it could be out in a. Uh, a year or it could be out in a couple of weeks sort of thing. Um, it's, I mean, a big factor in all of it though is vinyl. Like vinyl yeah. has, uh, you know, this is probably a whole other episode to, to, to get into. We shouldn't get into it now, but I mean, I, I got quotes for production times for vinyl recently. That was 15 weeks yeah. to deliver something. And uh, you know, in the end you kind of, it gets to a place where, it takes so long that you just kind of give up and you just put the, put the music out into the atmosphere and wait for it to like find its way to people and get actually out onto shelves or to ears and you have no control. So you just hope it gets out eventually. Yeah. And when it comes out, you hope that there's no skips and the artwork looks good, <laughs> which is another story. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's a whole, yeah, the whole production thing is, is a different thing. Cool. Well, thanks for coming by, man. Let's yeah. do it again. Yeah. It was a fun chat. Thanks for having me. No problem. And take care.